Okay, we're beginning here on the top of Yud Gimon with Aleph, nine lines down. It's the last of the narrow lines. Rabbi Shimon Pempazi, Kehava Potoch with Divri Ayamim. Whenever he used to introduce learning Divri Ayamim, Amar Hochi, he would say this, Kod Varecha Echad Heim. All of your words, all that you say are one. Ba'ano Yodim Ledorshan. And we know how to interpret them. It's not clear what he's speaking about, but in context, it would be saying that just like we just darshaned before with regards to Daniel, that the word Yehuda or Yehudi refers to someone who's kofir bad vodah so too in Divrei Yamim we're going to find the same feature that the word Yehuda or Yehudi is used to denote someone who is kofir bad vodah So that's one possibility of saying what Devarecha Echadheim. The other possibility is the drusha we're about to see here, which is as a puzzle with a number of people, lineage, fathers, sons, and the Gemara in the end is going to say they're all one person, and they're coming to define that individual with different names, and therefore it's called Varecha Echadheim, even though there are multiple names or multiple generations here, still they're all speaking about the same individual. That can be called Varecha or it could be the fact that Divrei has to be reconciled with the rest of the Tanakh, because it has pieces from many parts of Tanakh, and even though they are difficult, we know how to be Doresh them in order to reconcile with the rest of Tanakh. He says, he quotes a pasuk from Divrei Yamim, Perak Dalet, pasuk Yudchet, Vishto HaYehudiyah, his wife, the Yehudiyah, Yalda et Yered, she gave birth to Yered, Avi Gedor, who was the father of Gedor, Bet Chever, she gave birth to Chever, Avi Soho, the father of Soho, Bet Yukutiel, Avi Zanoach, and Yukutiel, the father of Zanoach, Ve'ele Bnei Bityah Bat Paro, these are the children of Bityah, the daughter of Paro, Asherlakach Mored. So this is speaking about in the context of the beginning of this little piece here is Bnei Kalev Ben Yifune. So it's speaking about Kalev, and it's speaking that his wife was this Yehudiah, and the latter half of the pasuk it says that her name was Bitya Bat Paro. So it seems that the names are synonymous that Yehudiah and Bitya Bat Paro are the same individual, and that's what the Gemara says. Asher Lakach Meret Amai Kari La Yehudiah. Why do they call her Yehudiah if her name is Bitya? Because she denied Avodah And there again here you have two names, Bitya and Yehudiah, speaking about the same individuals. That might be the Dvarcha Echad that was mentioned before. Or it could be the Dvarcha Echad. It goes back to what we saw in Daniel. In yesterday's daf, Itai Guvrin Yehudayin. They were called Yehudayim, even though they weren't from Yehudah, because they were Kofer Be'avodah And so too, with regards to Bat Paro, Bitya, she was Koferet Be'avodah Zarah. Tichtiv, Bateret Bat Paro Lechotz Ale Yehor. She came down to wash herself by the Nile. Why was she coming to wash herself? She was coming to wash herself from the from the filth of her father's house. Rashi over here takes that very literally. She was going to the mikveh for a shame gerut in order to convert. And that's why it's Yehudiah, that she was converting to Judaism in a sense. Now, that raises all sorts of issues in terms of whether she was really following protocol, whether there was anything to convert to, because were the Jews, Jews yet, this is pre-Har Sinai. The Turei Evan says that he feels that it should not be considered that Lerchotz Migulei Beit was really a conversion, rather it was a simli, representative type of washing oneself of the Gulei Beit That is when one does tshuva or one wants to cleanse themselves from something that's tum'ah, then they wash themselves off in a symbolic manner. And so to over here, she was washing herself off from the tum'ah, from the worship of Avodah Zarah that was found in her father's house. But the implications are similar, that she was denying Avodah Zarah, 
And that's why she was known as Yehudiah. And it says Yalda. Now the assumption here is that Yalda is that she gave birth to Yered. The Gemara is going to say in a second that Yered is Moshe Rabbeinu. And the Gemara wants to know, she didn't give birth to Moshe Rabbeinu. Haribuye Rivite. She brought him up, but she didn't give birth to him. So it teaches you that someone who brings up an orphan, a girl, a boy in your house, the apostle considers as if you gave birth to them, meaning that you become like the birth parents, you become like the rightful parents to this individual. The Ramah brings down in Choshen Mishpat that in documentation, if a adopted child writes, Avi, my father, or the father writes, Bini, my child, that if it's a situation like this, where there is an adoption, and they grew up in that individual's house, that that does not undermine the star because they treat each other, or they are in yachas of a father and child, like any adoptive parent would be, and they treat them like regular parents and regular children, and we see that from the puzzle here, that there is this assignment of birth from bringing up the child, not just the physical or biological birthing of the child. Now the Gemara is going to go through, this might be the other interpretation of what it means, Echad, which is that all the names that are mentioned there are Yered, that she gave birth to Yered, Zemoshe, the Lamini Krashmo Yered, so then why was he called Yared? But we have an argument is, Shirad Lahem Lisrael Man Biyamav, that he brought down Man Minashamayim in his lifetime. On the other hand, the Gra says that the Girsa should be that he was Horid Torah Israel Biyamav, that he brought down the Torah Klal Yisrael during his lifetime. Kiddor, which was the son of Yared. It says Yared, who was the Avi Giddor. So they say Avigdor or Gidor is also Moshe Rabbeinu. So then why is he known as Gidor? Shegadar pirtsotehem shel Yisrael. And he was able to fence up the breaches of Klai So he was able to help them out in difficult situations, when they needed protection, when they needed forgiveness. Moshe stepped in to the breach. Then the next child that it mentions there is Hever, who is the father of Soho. So when it says again, Hever is Moshe Rabbeinu. Shechiber et Yisrael avim b'shemayim. That he connected them to their father in heaven. Soho, shenaseh lehem l'Yisrael kisuka. He was like a protective awning, shade, or shield for B'nai Yisrael. He protects them from punishment. He protects them from the attacks from the outside. Moshe Rabbeinu was leading them. Then it says, she gave birth to Yekutiel. And again, they say that this is a reference to Moshe Rabbeinu. Shekabu Yisrael lekel beyamav. That when the Dora Midbar was under Moshe's auspices, that they were wanting or always looking forward to a Kodesh Baruch Hu. That's because of the man that was given every day that they would await. Akash Baruch Hu's presence each day to provide the food and provide them whatever they needed. But there was this relationship that was developed with Moshe Rabbeinu that they look forward to, or they anticipated a Kosh Baruch Hu each day. And then, Yupiel is the father of Zanoach, but again, they say Zanoach is Moshe Rabbeinu. She's Niach, Abonotayim Shal Yisrael. He caused the sins of Bnei Yisrael to be forsaken, or to be wiped away, or eliminated during his lifetime, because he, again, stepped into the breach, and Dabin on behalf of Klai Yisrael, protected them from the Chet Egel and the Chet Miraglim. Now, in each of these pairs, we have a child, and then a son afterwards. The word Avi appears three times. So now the Gemara Darshan is about Avi, 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 that Moshe Rabbeinu is Av B'Torah, he's the father of the Torah, Av B'Chuchmah, the father of wisdom, and Av B'Nevi'ut is also the father of prophecy. Like we find in the Rambam, who describes Moshe's unique standing as a Navi, as well as a purveyor of Torah, meaning that Moshe Rabbeinu is really the father of all Limura Torah, because anyone who learns Torah 
is really in the learning of the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, who brought it down from Akash Baruch Hu to us. And also, since Torah is not passed down by Yerusha, meaning that it's not an automatic inheritance, each person has to learn on their own and build themselves on their own. And therefore, anybody who's learning Torah is as if he's learning it back from the source because each individual stands on their own when it comes to limud ha-Torah. And then the pasuk ends off with, ve'elu b'nei bitya asher lakach mered. Well, it's really bitya bat paro asher lakach mered. So mared is the rebellious one. Chi mared shemo. Is his name really mered or mared? Velo kalev shemo. That's the beginning of that sequence. It says, b'nei kalev ben yifuneh. So it sounds like these are the children of kalev, and this was his wife, and it calls him Mered, who married Bitya Bat Paro. So, Amar Kodesh Brochu, Yovel Kalev, Shemarad Batzat Miraglim, that they were a good Shidduch. Kalev, who rejected the false reports and the libel that was brought back by the Miraglim, he separated himself out, he rebelled against their position, Vaisa et Bat Paro, and he should marry Bat Paro, Shemarda Bigulei Beit who rejected the idol worship of her father's house. So they both went against the grain. And since they both went against the grain, they were appropriate for each other, they were a good Shidduch. So now the Gemara moves back to discussing Megillat Esther, going pasuk by pasuk through Perak Bet. We left off with that Mordechai was Yehudi Asher B'Shushan B'Yosh Mordechai Benir Ben Kishimi Ben Kish Ishimini. So there we discussed about Yehudi and Yemini. That's what got us onto this sequence. The next pasuk is Asher Hogla Mirushalayim Im Agola Asher Haglata Im Yechonia Melech Yehuda Asher Hogla Nebuchadnezzar Melech Babel. And the Gemara Darshins Asher Hogla Mirushalayim. Amarava Shigala Miatzmo, that he came into the exile on his own. It seems to be that it comes from the duplication of the Lashon, which is, it says, Asher Haglam Yerushalayim, Ima Gola Asher Haglata. He came from Yerushalayim with the Gola that was already being put into exile with Yechonia Melech Yehuda, which makes it sound like there's some duplication of language, and that duplication of language indicates that he came voluntarily, or that he left on his own, he wasn't forcibly put into the exile but he left with the exile coming out of Yerushalayim. Although Tosafot says that it has to do with the fact that it doesn't say Asher Hugla, but it's rather Asher Hagla, that it wasn't a passive verb that he was forced into exile, but Hagla, that he exiled himself, even though the latter part of the Pasuk says Asher Haglata, Im Yechonia Melech but that's a reference to the total Gola. But he himself was Hagla, not Hugla, and therefore he was the one who put himself into exile, not that he was forced into exile. Then it continues to describe his relationship then with Esther. It says, He, Esther, but Dodo. He took care of, he brought up Hadassah, who is Esther, his cousin. Because she has no mother and father. She was beautiful. When her parents passed away, Mordechai took her as a daughter. Now the Gemara is going to dash in the parts of that pasuk. She has two names, Hadassah and Esther. So why does she have those two names? Her real name is Esther. So then why is she called Hadassah? Shame Hadassah. She named Hadassim. Because it's like the Tzadikim that are known as Hadassim. It says in the Nevoah, in the first parak in Zechariah, in a description of the vision that he sees, it says, And then he says, What are these things that I'm seeing? And the man staying amongst the Hadassim says, It's what Hashem is sending to go through the land. So it's a reference to that vision that Zechariah has about the Hadassim, 
that this man is standing amongst Hadassim in the vision that the Zechariah has. And Rashi claims over here that the Ish ben Hadassim, the Ish is a reference to a Kodesh Baruch Hu, or this Malach, that Omeid ben Hadassim is amongst the Tzadikim in the Galut. And that's a Kodesh Baruch Hu's with the Tzadikim in the Galut. And that vision of Zechariah speaks about the fact that Hashem is ready to bring back the Sherit Yisrael to Arei Yehuda and Yerushalayim, and to restore the Malchut and the Mikdash of Klal Yisrael. Yudomer Hadassah Shema, it's the other way around. Their real name is Hadassah, Lamini Krashma Esther, Shaitam Masteret Divareha, because she was hiding her words, or her birthplace, Shinemar, Ein Esther Magedet Etama, because she didn't reveal her, what nation she was from, and where she originated from. And so therefore she was called Esther, because of the hiddenness, or the secretiveness of her behavior and not revealing where she was from. Once again, Adas is a real name. Because the other nations used to call her Istahar. Now the way Rashi explains it over here is that Istahar comes from Sihara, and Sihara is a reference to the moon. Istahar is a reference to the moon, and that she was as beautiful as the moon. And therefore the other nations called her Istahar, after that fact. Now the truth is that Ishtar or Istahar is amongst the Persian pantheon of gods. She is the goddess of the morning star and she's out at night so it is related to the moon but it's like the morning star and that relates to the fact that the Perakin Tehillim that is assigned to Esther is the Matzeach Ayelet HaShachar. And Ayelet HaShachar is synonymous with Ishtar or Ishtar, the goddess of the Persian pantheon of gods and that might be the other nations called her Istahar, because that was a name that was assigned to someone like a queen, like Achashverosh, Koresh, Daryovesh, Istahar, or Esther, was a name that was given to a queen or a princess, which was associated with this goddess of the morning star. Ben Azayomer, Esther lo aruka, lo she wasn't too tall, she wasn't too short, haita alabenonit, kadasa, she was a, an average woman, like a hadassah, like the myrtle, which is an unassuming type of plant, not too tall, not too short, similar to the way that Chana prays for Shmuel, that he should just be ben anashim, that he should just be normal amongst the men, he shouldn't be stand out, not to be too big, not to be too small. Yeshua ben Karchomer, Esther Yerak that she was actually, the terminology here, Yerak is in clear here, Yarok is green, but many times in the Gemara, Yarok or Yerak is a reference to yellow and maybe more along the lines of like a jaundice type of color. Despite the fact that she was discolored, we'll call it that way, or had a sickly look to her, there was a string of grace that was upon her. Akash Baruch Hu caused other people to be attracted to her, despite the fact that she wasn't really physically beautiful. And obviously, Yarok Roket comes from the Hadas, which is Yarok, which is green. And therefore, there's a reference to in the Hadasim. That's why her name is Hadasa. And this will play into the Agadot that we're going to see later in the next couple of daf, that maybe Esther wasn't so pretty. And maybe all of this is miraculous. And the way that we know it's miraculous is that because she wasn't so pretty, and yet everybody thought she was pretty, it was clear that God was intervening, or God was causing her to have grace that made other people attracted to her. And that's how she was able to win the affection of Achashverosh and eventually save the Jews, especially since before she enters to besiege Achashverosh on behalf of the Jews, she fasts for three days. 
and therefore she might have been a Yerak Roket, not because that was her natural coloring, but that because of the fact that she was fasting for three days, and then she turned that type of color, and that shows there was a demonstration of her emunah, and of course Baruch Hu, that he was the one who was bringing the salvation, not her beauty, and she wanted the Am to know that as well, and she had them fast along with her for the three days to know that she was not walking in all beautiful, she was walking in in a state of weakness, ashen-faced, drawn-faced, with weakness and starvation, whereas fasting for three days, and so they should know that they needed to rely on their tefillot and the rachamim and shemaim, not the fact that they have an insider in the palace. And that might work well with the fact that the Pesach explicitly says, with regards to Esther, that she was So if she was beautiful, how do we have a drusha that she was Yerak Roket? Either because of the difficulties or the stress from being taken into the palace she turned into Yerak Roket, or maybe along the lines of what we're suggesting over here was that Yerak Roket was associated with the fasting and the preparations to meet the Achash Berosh. And yes, she was beautiful, but at that moment, she didn't use her beauty, but rather relied on the Rachelim of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to see her through that difficulty. And that's why it's a Chutz Shechesed, Mashuchaleh, which was what? Won the day. Kena Av Vaim says that the reason that he adopted her is because she did not have parents, that her parents passed away. It says, Kena Av Vaim, but then it says, Umota Vima. Lomali, what do I need, Umota Vima, if I already know that she has no parents? Amar Avacha, so it comes to teach you, either you learn it, Kena La Avaim, she never had parents, or and then is significant because they died in a fashion in which she was not aware of their living, she only knew their mita. So one of the two is extraneous that gives you this information, and that is when she was conceived, her father passed away, when her mother gave birth to her, her mother passed away. And when her parents passed away, Mordechai adopted her as a child, as a daughter. Don't say that he took her in as a daughter, but rather as a household. And that is a euphemistic term for a wife. Because, like it says in the Gemara and Shabbat, that I always called Ishti Beiti. My wife is the household. She's the Akerat Abayit. And therefore, Bayit and Ishto are synonymous. And the Gemara is suggesting over here that Mordechai was married to Esther. So that might either be derived from the fact that it says Lakcha or Likuchin, which is usually associated with marriage or Kiddushin. And that's why the Gemara reinterprets it to mean that it is a Bayit and not a Bat. Or it could be that it says Valakcha Mordechai Lo. He took her for himself. So why would he be taking for himself a daughter, but rather it's taking for himself, meaning that he married her. Others say the derivatives from the fact that at the beginning of the Apostle Gadre says that he was bringing her up, he was raising her. So then why does he have to say if he was already so that can't mean literally but it must mean something more or something different than raising her. And the reason that it doesn't publicize it or write it explicitly is because of the fact that this Megillah was written at the time when the Persian Empire was still extant, and they didn't want to reveal this issue to Achashverosh and his compatriots that Mordechai was married to Esther. We'll see later on that the Balei Tosafot take this very literally and ask questions or halachic issues with regards to this. Although there are others that maybe take it a little more figuratively, and that it's just an agadic explanation, not the simple explanation of the Pasuk. 
And we have evidence of the fact that this is the case because it says by the mashal that Natana Navi brings to David to incriminate him with regards to what he did with Bathsheba, he sells the story. The poor man only has one little lamb that he bought, and he keeps it alive. If she grew up with him, with the rest of his family, the lamb eats along with him from his food, from his bread, drinks from his cup, and she sleeps in his bosom. And she was to him like a daughter. So the Gemara Because she is sleeping in his grasp, in his bosom, then she's considered to be a bat. That's much more like a household or a wife. So, Hakanami also over here, the word the vat is not the bat, but rather the bayit. The Gemara assumes that the mashallah kipsa is speaking about a kipsa, and even though it says that she was like a daughter, it's really like she was like a wife to him. And even though it says kibat, it really means kibayit. And so too by us, even though it says levat, it really means levayit. And then it continues the darsh in the pastu that Esther is taken to the Beit HaMelech, Al-Yad Chegai, Shomer HaNashim. And it says, V'titav anara beinav, V'titza chesed lefanav, V'yibahel et hamlukea v'et manotel ha-tedla, V'et sheva ne'arot haruyot ha-tedla mi-Beit HaMelech. She got seven maidservants to service her. V'yishaneha v'et narotel etov Beit HaNashim. And they went out of his way to do good for her and her maidservants in the harem of the women. So now the Gemara Dachshund said, Sheva Ne'arot, why did she get seven maidservants? Did everybody get seven maidservants? What was unique about Esther? He couldn't have given it to every woman who came there. That she used them to keep track of Shabbat. She would have each one of them service on one day, and she knew when the maidservant of Shabbat came around that it was the day of Shabbat, and she used to keep use that to keep track of Shabbat, whether that was because she was losing track of time being separated from the community, or because of the fact that she didn't want the maidservants to know that on certain days she did malacha, on certain days she didn't do malacha, so she kept them separate. So only the ones that were on each day would know what she did on that day, but they wouldn't know that on Shabbat she was resting, because maybe they thought she rested every day. And the ones who did malacha on every day would think she did malacha every day. So she kept them separate, so that might have been the reason for it. Then it says, Vayishanavit narutah letov, that they did good by her. Amar Rav Shechila Machal Yudi. Hegai went out of his way to take care of her, to feed her, quote-unquote, Jewish food. Shmuel Amar Shechila Kadlei Dechaziri. That he gave her sides or hinds of the pieces of pig, as Rashi calls it over here, bacons. He gave her bacon. So Rabbi Yochanan Amar Zeronim. That he gave her seeds to eat a vegetarian diet, similar to what it says by Daniel, So these were children that were taken from the Galut of Yehuda that were good looking and had a chances to be brought up in the king's palace and to become advisors to the king. And they were given rations from the king. To bring them up for two, three years. And some of them would then graduate to service the king. From amongst Bnei Yehuda, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishal, Bazariah, goes back to the end of yesterday's daf, that Bnei Yehuda, according to most of Midrashim, only references to Daniel, but Hananiah, Mishal, Bazariah were not from Yehuda, and they're called from Bnei Yehuda because they denied or kofer Babur Zarah. And says there, Vayasim Daniel Aliboa Shelohit Gaal Bepatbag Hamelech Ubiyein Mishtab that he wouldn't partake of the food that the king gave. Vayivkakesh Mitzarev Hayasim Shelohit Gaal 
He said, I don't want any of that stuff. And the Sarah Sarisim, who's the one who provides the food for them, is afraid to acquiesce to Daniel's request to give them other food that is not as healthy because if they don't look good, he's going to be held accountable for the fact that they're not fed well. The Yomer Daniel al Meltzar, he says to the server of the food, the waiter, Give us from the seeds of vegetarian diet and the water to drink, and we'll test it out for 10 days. And if we look as good as the other children that are eating the rations from the king, then you'll let us continue to do this. And he did that, they did a test, and it works out that they look better or healthier than the ones that were eating from the rations of the king. And therefore, by Yom said, Pat Bagam Mishtehem, he wouldn't give them their bread and portions and wine, but rather give them Zeronim instead. And that's why it's known as the Machal of the Yudim. And so therefore, Zeronim is the food of choice for the Jews in the court of the non-Jewish princes. And so that's what she got. And what's interesting is, obviously, the Tov here depends from whose perspective. Was it Tov from Esther's perspective? Then it was Machal Yudi or Zeronim. On the other hand, if it was Tov from the perspective of Haggai, Shomer Nashim, then that was the Kadle de Chazire. Rashi here again says that it was bacon and that she ate the bacon. She was under duress. But because she was in a situation with no choice, therefore she was considered to be an ones and then she would not be punished for it. Toswat says, Chas v'shalom. He gave it to her. But she didn't eat it. On the other hand, you'll see here that there's another girsa in the Aruch who says, Oref shel chazeret. They're not chadle de chazire pigs from chazir, but from the word chazeret. Kloma rosh shel chasa. A head of lettuce was the description over here. And obviously that would take away a lot of the sting of her having to eat pig because she was in the palace of the king. What's more interesting is the fact that Rabbi Yochanan and Rav believed that she was given food that was appropriate for her national origins. And that's somewhat problematic because nobody knew where she was from. Nobody knew what her nation was and she wouldn't tell anybody what her origins were. So how do they know to fear that food? Elim Cain, you say that Haggai knew because she was associated with Mordechai and Mordechai was Yehudi. Therefore, he fed her food that was appropriate for Mordechai. Now that Gemara continues to darshan the psukim in Esther. It says, She had the special treatment, for 12 months. Six months in this oil, and six months of perfumes and aromatics. And the Gemara wants to know, It's this aromatic oil that they applied to the women. It's actually olive oil that comes from olives that have only reached a third of their maturation. This is also another name for this anpikinun, it's a shemen So why did they anoint, why did they put it on the body of the women? It causes defilation, it removes the hair of the women, and softens their skin. And then when it came to each the turn of each young lady, it says, She used to go at night, and then return in the morning, So 
So Gemara says about Erev Hibab Boker Hishavam Rabbi Yochanan Mignuto Shel Rasha from the despicable behavior of this Rasha that he was sleeping with these women once and then just tossing them out. Amanu Shivcho learned something praiseworthy about him. Shloya Mishemesh Mitato Bayom that he only slept with the women at night, not during the day, because it says Erev Hibab Boker Hishava and that way upheld the principle of Chazal to only have relations at night. But he, Esther, no It says that with regards to Esther, when her terror came, that she was no seit chen menei korea, that she had grace in the eyes of all that saw her. Each one thought that she was from his nation. I mean, they were all cheerleading for her because they thought she was from their nation. That's why she found grace or pleased all those that were around her. And then it says, She was taken in the middle of the winter in Tevet, in the cold period of time. In a time period where the warmth of bodies being up against each other gives additional pleasure. And therefore she was an advantage. that She went at that time that gave her an advantage over the other women because it was the cold time of the year. And therefore, there is more benefit from the closeness or proximity of the bodies, not just from the relations that take place. So the king loved her from all the other women. And she found favor in his eyes and grace in his eyes from all the other bitulot that were taken. He wanted to experience having relations with a bitula. Tam, and he did have that. Tam bi'ula. He also wanted to have experience of relations with a woman of experience. Tam, and he also had that. I mean, that Esther gave him all of that, and that's why he was so pleased with her. Yes, Amelech Mishte Gadol. To celebrate the choice of Esther, the king makes a great party. Abad Mishteya, he made a great party. She refused to reveal her origins. And Esther Magedet Melata Ve'etama Kashet she doesn't disclose where her birthplace was or her nation. Dali Karga says over there that the king, in celebrating the fact that he brought the new queen, he says, He had a tax holiday. So he took down the taxes below Galilee. Even though he took down the taxes in the name of Esther, she did not reveal it to him. Shadar Pardishnei. He sent gifts. He sent out gifts to all the Sarim in her name. Below Galilee, she refused to reveal it. After it seems that Esther was already picked as the choice for the queen, it says that the Betulot were gathered once again for a second time. Mordechai was sitting in the gateway of the king's palace or the royal area of the city. First of all, what's the connection between Hippocrates Betulot Shenit and Mordechai Yosheh B'Shar Number two is, why are they Hippocrates Betulot Shenit? He's already chosen Esther. So it says, Azul Shakal Eitzami Mordechai. Hashverus went to get advice from Mordechai about how to get Esther to disclose the information. The woman is only jealous of another woman. So he, he gabates betulot shenit, was to make Esther jealous. And that was at the advice of Mordechai. And then it says afterwards, the next pasuk, despite that, ain't Esther magedet molata ve'etama. So yilohachi lo gayule dichtiv ain't Esther magedet molata. Despite all of the pressure that he applied to her, she never reveals it. Unlike Shimshon, who eventually gives in to Dalia and reveals the information, Esther never gives up the information, no matter what Achashverosh did for her or what pressure he placed on her. Amar Rabbi Lazar, my dichtiv, what is meant by the pasuk that is found in Iov, lo yigara mitzadik enav, vet melachim nekisei, yoshivim lenetzach v'igbo. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, with kings on the thrones. He seats them there forever and they are exalted. 
that asurim bezikim yilachdun bechavle oni. And if they are bound in shackles and caught in pains of affliction or poverty of affliction, declares to them what they have done and that, that their transgressions are great. He opens up their understanding to discipline or to musar, chastisement. And he orders them to repent or come back from the wrongdoing. If they listen and do what is right, then their days will end well. And then they will have years of delight. They're not following the way of Hashem. They do not listen. Then they'll die by the sword and they will die because they lacked understanding what needed to be done. That Hashem will not take away from the tzaddik that which he deserves. Meaning that the eyes of the Kodesh Baruch will always make sure that the tzaddik is replayed in full. Even though it might take a long time, in the end Hashem pays them back in full. And that is the story of the Sechar, Niyut, Shaita Baba Rachel, because of the modesty that Rachel had, Zachtav Yatsami Mena Shaol. She had Shaol, who was the king from Binyamin, Ubischar Tzniyut Shaita Baba Shaol. And because of the humility and modesty that was shown by Shaol, Zachtav Yatsami Mena Esther. He had Esther be his descendant. Umat Tzniyut Haita Baba Rachel. What was the modesty that Rachel demonstrated? Echtev, Vayaged Yaakov Rachel. Yaakov tells Rachel when he meets her by the Be'era for the first time, that she is her father's brother. She really is her father's brother. She was his father's nephew or her first cousin. So why is she saying that she is her father's brother, making him her uncle? And the truth is that from their age difference, could have been that he was the age of her uncle. But nevertheless, he continues to say over there that ben that he was also the son of Rivka. So he clarifies clearly afterwards that he is not the brother of her father, but rather the son of her aunt, Rivkah. But wasn't he really the nephew of her father or her first cousin? So the simple way to read the Pasuk is that Achi does not always mean brother, it means relative or close relative. The reason that the Gemara might still want to dash in the Pasuk is because he explicates after that that Achi ben Rivkahu, that he explains that he is the son of Rivka. So then why did he say Achi Aviyah to start out? Elo Amarla Mitzabali, he proposes marriage to her at first sight, Amrla in. She says, yes, I want to marry you. Miu Abba Ramahu. The father is a conniving trickster thief. And you're not going to beat him at it. Amrla Achiv Ana In a funny sense, the Yeshiva Bachar Yaakov says, I'm his peer with regards to trickery and deceit, and I'll outwit him. And that's why he says, Is it permissible for tzaddikim to engage in deceit? That is the case, it is true, because it says in Shirat David, that's found at the end of Shmuel Bet, also in the beginning of Tehillim, it says, With those that are pure, you act with purity. With those that are perverse, you act wily. So you act on par with the way that the individual acts with you. You reflect that behavior towards them. So Amar La. So Yaakov says to Rachel, my Yuta, what's the deceit that he's going to play or trick that he's going to play here? Amar Achta de Kashisha Minai. have a sister who's older than me. Lo Kama. He's not going to let me get married before her. So Masa La Simanim. Yaakov gives her the simanim in order to be clear that she identifies herself on the night of the wedding, that it's really her and not her sister. Kimata 
My sister is going to be embarrassed because she's going to be in this predicament and then she's going to show up there. She's not going to have these simanim and it's going to be a huge embarrassment. She revealed or gave over the simanim to her sister. And that's why it says in the puzzle, When he got up in the morning, he realized it was Leah. It means that until now, he didn't think it was Leah. How did he think it was Leah? Because Rachel gave those signs to Leah. He didn't know until then, because she gave him the indication that she was Rachel. For that altruistic act, the Gemara calls it sniut, of modesty, which is interesting, because it was really an act of compassion. So some say that sniut, or the modesty aspect, was that she didn't reveal to her father that she already had engaged in conversation with Yaakov. She didn't reveal secrets. You could suggest that sniut, modesty, is what allows one to be compassionate. Meaning that if a person thinks too much of themselves, or is much more showy, they are going to put that as a priority before the feelings or the consideration of others. Someone who is modest and can stand back and is more humility, they will be able to be compassionate toward others and put the feelings and the needs of others before theirs. And maybe that was the tzniyut. And because of that, Zachtavi yatsami mena Shaul. Ma tzniyut ayta b'sha'ol. Shaul was also very tzanua. Tichtev et varam lucha lo yigidlo asher Shmuel. So even though Shmuel anoints him to be the king when he met Shmuel for the reason of trying to find his father's lost donkeys, when he comes back, and he relays the story of meeting Shmuel and Avi to his uncle, he leaves out that piece of information that he was anointed as the king. So he didn't go and disclose that or make a big deal out of that. And therefore, Zachar Yetzat Yimenu Esther. For that Sniot, Esther comes out from him. There are other incidents also where Shaul is very Tzanua when they go to throw the lots to find out who's going to be the king. Also over there, it says that he was hiding behind the Kalim when he, the lot fell on him because he didn't want to be out in the public sphere. He didn't want to be showy. He was hiding from the honor of being the king. And what is the tzniyot of Esther? And that you can see in the Bach as the Girsa, Mahi, what is the tzniyot of Esther? Is that, Ein Esther mageret et amavet molata, that she didn't reveal those secrets. I mean, she was able to keep it quiet and not be showy or give up that information. And that was the tzniyot of Esther. That's what Amar Rabbi Lazar, Kishakarish Baruch Hu Posek Dulal Adam, and Kishakarish Baruch Hu determines that greatness should be for a person, Posek the Banav, Bubnei Banav at Sof Kol He does that not just for that person, but to his children, his children's children at Sof Kol Adorot. Now, continuation of the Pasuk in Yov, that's right after this, and ever, Vayoshivem Lanetzach Vayigbao, that he seats them for eternity, Vayigbao, and he elevates them, and he raises them up. And so that might be the meaning, or the definition of the Pasuk, Ligam at Tzadik, Enav, that Hashem doesn't hold back or cause the tzaddik not to get what he deserves, but he is enough. He's always looking to make sure that it happens. It may not happen right away, but he takes care of him and his offspring after him. And that's what it means that the schut of this individual will always be there for him and his offspring. Just like over here, where Rachel's single act of modesty precipitated Shaul, the king, coming from her descendants, and then from Shaul coming to Esther, who saved the Jews in the time of Kashverosh and Haman. But if the individual, if the person gets haughty or thinks too much of themselves after a Baruch Hu awards them with that, a Baruch Hu mashpilo, then Hashem brings them right back down. Again, they quote the Pesach in Yov, that's right after this, Asurim Bizikim, and if they are bound by chains, Rashi says over there, that says, 
that he raises them up. And then right afterwards he says, if they are bound by chains because of the fact that they were magbiyonatzmam, since they elevated themselves, that's what brings them to aniyut v'isurim, poverty and affliction. Others interpret the Pasuk to say, v'im asurim, which not is not isurim, like Rashi says, but asurim from the word isur, that if he does things that are wrong, then bizikim, he'll end up in chains. And that's why over here, actually, the Gemara says, that bizchut the tzniut of Rachel, she had Shaul, but then bizchut the tzniut of Shaul, they had Esther. Even though from Rachel it should have been enough, but it wouldn't have been enough if Shaul was not also Tzanua, because if he was Magbiah, if he was haughty, then it would have gotten knocked down and got knocked away. So he needed the Tzniut of Shaul on top of the Tzniut of Rachel to produce the Esther who brought about the salvation of Klai Yisrael. So now we're back to Darshan the Psukim in the second parak. It says, after any Esther, Magedim alatav etamah, kashet tzibalei Mordechai, bet ma'amar Mordechai Esther osa, kashet ha'ita ba'amna ito. She used to her menstrual flows to the Chachamim to determine if she was Tmeya or she was Torah. Like when she was brought up by him. She used to leave the palace of Achashverosh from sleeping with him. Go to the Mikveh. And then go and sleep or go back to the home of Mordechai. Toswit over here takes it very literally again and says, Vim Tomar Sham One is not allowed to engage in Biyah with another party until three months have elapsed to ensure that we can separate between a pregnancy from one or the other. And over here she was going from day to day back and forth between Achashverosh and Mordechai. How did she do that? She used to use birth control when she was with Achashverosh. So there was no suspicions that she was going to give birth from Achashverosh, and therefore she didn't have to wait that requisite time before she went back to Mordechai. But again, you see how literally the Bayotosavot are taking it. It's also interesting because in Seder Olam, they say that the baby born of the marriage between Achashverosh and Esther was the Yavis Hashini, who was the one who permitted the building of the Beit HaMikdash. If that's the case, she obviously wasn't using birth control, or at some point she stopped using birth control. So therefore, the Turi Evans says maybe she was using birth control with Mordechai and not with Achashverosh, which would be a lot more difficult, a lot more surprising, but that he suggests maybe that was the case to answer the issue with regards to Seder Olam Rabbah. The Marshal suggests that maybe that had to do with the transition, which we're going to see coming up in the Gemara, when Esther finally voluntarily goes to Achashverosh and therefore is no longer permitted to go back to Mordechai. At that point, she stops using birth control because she's not going back to Mordechai, and out of that relationship with the Hashverosh was born, the Yavish Hashini, maybe that's the solution to the problem. Right, so now continuing in Pasuk Chafalot in Perak Bet, So the Gemara says, Gemara got a master mad at his servants, a son Sadiq, in order to do the will of a tzaddik, or to help out a tzaddik, umanu Yosef. That was Yosef, Shinemar, the Shamitanu Narivri. Because Paro got mad at his servants, the Saramashkim and the Sarofim, they ended up in the prison, and then they met Yosef, and eventually when Paro has his dreams later on, he says, I remember this Narivri, I remember about Yosef, and that brings about the salvation of Yosef. And Avadim Nohem, and over here, Hashem made the servants angry at their master, in order to do a miracle for the tzaddik, and who's that? It's Mordechai. 
that this plot by Bintan and Teresh became known to Mordechai. And he told Esther about it. And Esther conveys this to the king in the name of Mordechai. They were from Tarsis. And they spoke Tarshian, which was a difficult language or a language that not many people were familiar with. Therefore, they assumed nobody would understand them. The time now that Esther has become the queen, we never see any more sleep because they were the Saramashkim and Akashverosh was always thirsty because he's continuously having relations with Esther. So, let us poison him in his pitcher or in his goblet. So we don't have to deal with him anymore. He's driving us crazy. They didn't realize Mordechai was a member of the Sanhedrin Agdola, and he was familiar with many different languages, including this Tursi, never was able to understand what they were saying. So Big Tan or Teresh says one to the other, We don't have the same watch. So it's not clear here exactly what that means, that they were not on at the same time, so that one couldn't cover for the other, or we're not on at the same time, so we can both take the fall if something goes wrong over here, we want to do it together and not get one of us in trouble. So I'm alone. So one of them said to the other, I'll take my watch and your watch so nothing will be missing. They won't catch on to this. And then the other person will then take care of poisoning the king. And they looked into the matter and they figured it out. They saw that they weren't on their proper watches because they looked into it and they saw that they had switched their watches in order to set up this planned collusion to assassinate Achashverosh. And then it says, in the next parak, in parak Gimel, Achar advarim ha'ele gidal ha'melech Achashverosh et haman ben amdata gagi, inaseyu, v'yesem et kiso mi'al kol asirim ashirito. So Gmar says, my Achar, what's after this? Amarava, Achar shubara kodesh bochur ufala makah, after Hashem brought the solution, the cure to the wound, then he punishes Klal Yisrael, and that's when Haman rises to power. Shem doesn't punish Bnei Yisrael unless the cure or the solution is in place beforehand. When I have the cure or the method for healing Israel, then I will expose the sin of Ephraim. So it talks about the cure being before he exposes the sin of Ephraim. With regards to the other nations, it's not like that. Makautam, first he punishes them. And then he has the rifua come about. Hashem will then afflict Mitzrayim. He will punish them and then cure them. So you see that the punishment comes first, and then only afterwards the rifua. Now the truth is, if there's a rifua in the end, either way, why does it matter if the rifua is there in the beginning or if it's in the end? So first of all, there's a concept called pat besalo, knowing that you have the rifua in hand is comforting from the outset, even though you're getting punished. But it also has to do with the nature of the punishment, which is that the punishment by Klal Yisrael is clearly a punishment to help them do tshuva and to be marek avotenotehem, to wipe out their sins, because Hashem already knows that He's going to cure them. He's just doing it because He knows that they're going to engage in tshuva. On the other hand, with regards to the other nations, Hashem punishes them without knowing whether He's going to continue the punishment or He's going to cure them or allow them to recover from it because... He doesn't know if they're going to do tshuva. But Klal Yisrael, he has confidence that they're going to do tshuva. They're going to have the refuah in place beforehand. Whereas the other nations, he does the negifah first, and then the refuah will be there if 
they do tshuva, or if they make changes. And so it's a very different type of mindset with regards to the punishment that's brought on Klaiso versus the other nations. Therefore, their punishment is more like a warning or an instigation to get them to do the right thing rather than for the sake of punishment, as opposed to the other nations where the punishment itself is the purpose. And then it says about Haman that he gets angry at the fact that Mordechai would not bow down. And he's very angry. And it says, It was beneath him just to kill Mordechai himself, because that would look like it was just a personal vendetta. Because they told him about which nation Mordechai was from. So rather than just kill Mordechai, he wants to wipe out the whole nation, so it doesn't look like it's a personal vendetta or just his personal kavod that he's looking out for. So Amarova b'tchila b'mordechai levado. First, he just wants to hurt Mordechai or eliminate Mordechai. Ulusof am Mordechai, and then he says that it's not enough Mordechai. I just I want to get the nation of Mordechai. Umanu, who's the nation of Mordechai? Rabbonon, the Chachamim, who are the peers of Mordechai. Ulusof b'chol ayudim, because that's the word of the pasuk which says the shloch yad b'Mordechai levado kidelo et am Mordechai. Progressively, he wants to kill more and more people that are associated with Mordechai. First of all, Mordechai himself, then his peers, the Chachamim, and then all the Jews that were his nation. He peeled poor Ahua Goral, so then he decides to throw a lot in order to determine when he's going to have this genocide take place. Falls out in the month of Adar. When it fell out on Adar, he was very happy. In the month that Moshe died. He didn't realize that it was not only the yard site of Moshe Rabbeinu, it was also the birth date of Moshe Rabbeinu. That is because as Rashi does over here, you can calculate her back into the fact that Moshe died on the 7th of Adar based on the Psukim and Yoshua that says that month of mourning after Moshe Rabbeinu and then they prepared for three days until they crossed the Yardane and then they go across the Yardane on the 11th of Nisan. So if you back out the 33 days from the 11th of Nisan, you get back to the 7th of Adar when Moshe passed away. And that is something that is known or well known because you can calculate from the Psukim. On the other hand, the fact that Moshe was born on that day that's a drosha from the Psukim, which is, Ben Today, I am 120. And that is based on the Mamar Chazal, that Sadikim live miyom niyom. They live from day to day, meaning that they die on their birthday. And from that we know that Moshe Rabbeinu was also born on Zion Adar. So it wasn't only a bad day for Bnei Yisrael, because Moshe passed away, but it was also a good day because of the day that Moshe Rabbeinu was born. And then Amman goes to Melchashverosh to petition him to allow him to kill the Jews. He says, He now wants to purchase the right to kill out the Jews. And now the Gemara explains that He was the best speaker of Lashon Ra or the best libeler that was out there. He was able to convince Achashverosh of how bad Bnei Yisrael were. Amar Lei Amman proposes to Chashverosh, let's go wipe them out. Amalei, Chashverosh responds to Amman, Mistafina me'elokav delo le'avet ki'edavet ki'vikamai. Afraid of getting involved or tangling with Bnei Israel, because the people before who tangled with them or hurt them were punished by their God, and I don't want to be the subject of that punishment. Amalei, yashnu min mitzvot. So instead, it doesn't say over here, 
yesh amechad, but yeshno. So they darshan from yeshno, yeshnu, that they had changed from the mitzvot. They don't keep the mitzvot anymore. Or others say that it comes from the word yeshan, that it was old on them. They were tired of doing the mitzvot. Not that they weren't doing the mitzvot, but they weren't doing the mitzvot with simcha anymore. Like the tochacha says, so they don't have that protection anymore. Okay, so that's the Hamonam. They still have the Rabbonon that do mitzvot. They're one nation. So either he's saying to them they're one nation, meaning that even though the Rabbonon do the mitzvot, the ones that don't do the mitzvot, they are raving, they are responsible for it. So therefore they're subject to the same problem. Or Amachad, just like the other people aren't doing the mitzvot, the Chachamir are not doing the mitzvot. And how do I know that? Because... They came to your party in Shushana Bira. Shemot Tomar Karcha Niosebamachutecha. He says, maybe I'm gonna now kill them, I'm gonna leave this empty space, or I'm gonna leave a devastated or deserted area in the middle of my kingdom. Mifuzarimheim. Ben Amim. They're all spread out, so it's not a problem. You're gonna kill some here and some there, it's not gonna leave a big hole. They're spread out amongst all the other nations. Shemotomari Hanami Nayu. Maybe you're gonna say that they're beneficial to the kingdom. Mifurad. They are dispersed, but here he says it's kipreda. It's like this mule that is unable to reproduce. And so the play on the word is mifurad, preda, like a mule which can work but has no productivity, has no peyrot, no offspring. Maybe you're going to say that there is a whole country of them somewhere. So Rashi says, maybe there's a small area where they're all concentrated, but that's very difficult. Now that seems to be a repeat of what he said before, Shem Tomar Karcha and Yosef Machutecha, that maybe there's a whole nation of them. Don't worry about there being a Karcha because they're dispersed all over. So some suggest that maybe there's Ika Medinta Minayu outside of my Malchut. There's Jews and therefore if I wait them out here, they're still going to be extant because they're going to live somewhere else They live outside of my kingdom. And that's what it says, They're found only in your empire, nowhere else. Or, or maybe there was a suggestion here that you should gather them all into one area and exile them to one Pacific area. So there you can't do that either because they are dispersed throughout the kingdom of Mikolam, And their religion or their beliefs or their behaviors are different than anyone else. They won't eat food with us. They won't break bread with us. They don't eat our food. They don't marry our children. And they don't marry off to us. Their children, they don't intermarry. And the ways of the king or the rules of the king, they don't do. They walk through the whole year. Where they make a claim that it's always a holiday or it's always Shabbat. And therefore they can't pay the taxes to the king. Some say the Girsayers, Shavuot Ayom, Pesach Ayom, it's Shavuot or Pesach today, which is referencing to the holidays, the day that they left Mitzrayim and the day of Kabbalat Torah. Although this is somewhat problematic because just before Haman said that they don't keep the mitzvot anymore. And over here he's saying that they do keep the mitzvot. But that might exactly be his point, which is that they selectively keep the mitzvot. When they wanted to join the party of Achashverosh, they didn't worry about the mitzvot. When it comes to paying taxes, then all of a sudden they're very religious and they're keeping the mitzvot and they can't pay the taxes. And this might go back to what we said before. It was not that they weren't doing the mitzvot. But they weren't doing the mitzvot b'simcha. So they did keep the mitzvot, but they didn't do it in a way that was mitok simcha and tuv levav. And so then it wouldn't be a stira between these two positions. It's not worth it for the king to keep them around. They eat, they drink. And then when they're merry with all their food and their wine, then they denigrate or they poke fun 
of the king and the kingdom. Just even if a fly falls into their cup of wine, chucks it out and drinks it. Then if the king touches one of the cups, by him touching the yayin, throws it onto the ground and doesn't drink it anymore. So that contrast, Haman is pointing out that it's not worth keeping them around because they have no respect for the king. They are more likely to drink something that had a fly in it than that which the king touched. And so he's pointing out this inconsistency in their behavior that they really don't care about the king and they don't really respect the king. And therefore it's worthwhile for the king to get rid of them because they're not going to do any good. Although we're not going to delve into it, many of the poskim try to learn halachot from this din over here. First of which is that in Sonain, in something cold, if a fly falls in there, then there is no bliah if it doesn't stay there for a long period of time, and therefore if you take it out, there's no problem of kashrut. And also from the din here of Chovtoba Karka, that there's a possibility maybe of kashring the kli after there's a problem from Yain Stam Yenam or Yain Nesach by putting it into the ground. So that might be also, these are lachot that possibly are learned out of here, but it brings up a broader question, which we will discuss in the upcoming Dabim as well, as to whether you can learn halachot from Agadita, or whether Agadita is simply Agadita, and therefore you have to be careful about learning halachot from Agadita. Okay, we're going to stop here, five lines from the bottom of Yudgimel Amud Bet.